Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. In this episode, we'll discuss the short work I Cthulhu by Neil Gaiman. Yeah, this uh, short story was originally published in the magazine Dagon in 1987, though it has been reprinted really all over the place since then. Uh, This includes the Neil Gaiman Reader that came out in 2020. It is also available for free on his website, neilgaiman.com. And we put this very short story on really the, the top of the list for this Sandman interlude because it came up in Season of Mists during one of our visits to Lucian's library. Now, This story is a bit of a strange beast, so we are not going to do a a recap and commentary format like we do for almost everything else that we do here on the show. It's really just not a plot-driven story like that. So I will give a synopsis of the story, and then I think we'll just share some of our favorite parts with each other. But before we do any of that, we're going to start by giving a short primer on Cthulhu and also the writer who invented Cthulhu, that is to say H.P. Lovecraft. Now, H.P. Lovecraft was an American writer of speculative fiction during the 1920s and 1930s. He's one of the founders of horror as a type of publishing category, though he didn't live very long. Uh, He died in his 40s, essentially of poverty. He had a, a disease, a condition that would have been easily prevented if he had been able to live better to to eat better because he if, if he had been getting paid better i guess i should say really for his uh, for his output which is uh massive uh even though he didn't live very long most of this output was published in pulp magazines especially weird tales uh, but also others Lovecraft's early stories are intentionally modeled on one of the other very important founders of horror, not just as a publishing category, but as a a genre, and that's Edgar Allan Poe, of course, uh, but also Lord Dunsany. But I think today, really, Lovecraft is known for his cosmic horror stories, uh, stories in which the horror is a protagonist discovering that humanity is insignificant and that uh, we live in a universe that doesn't care about us, and also maybe contains entities that could and might destroy us all at any moment. Now, one of those entities, the most famous of them, is Cthulhu. Uh, Cthulhu appears in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu, which is also probably his most famous story. Cthulhu is a scary and powerful being from, uh, well, outer space, but Cthulhu is asleep at the bottom of the ocean. And We here on Earth are all only okay until Cthulhu wakes up, which could happen at any moment. But Cthulhu is really only one such entity in Lovecraft's stories, and and together those entities comprise uh, something that we call the Cthulhu mythos, which Brent is going to give us a little bit of a uh, precis on. The Cthulhu mythos is a shared fictional universe, and at its foundation, as Glenn mentioned, uh, is the writer H.P. Lovecraft and many of his writings. Sometimes people lace in a lot of his work um, into the mythos. Some people argue that some things are mythos adjacent as a rather than proper mythos, but um, in either way, it's kind of he developed a shared kind of universe based on, in some parts, shared characters, shared references to similar uh, fictional beings. Um, at times, he was also bringing in fictional beings from other writers' work. 
Chambers and his um, the King in Yellow work in particular, um, and other things by Dunsany and others, he would bring things in that essentially became grafted as part of the mythos that he took as at least his slant on it became part of kind of the fictional universe that he was creating. But then he also encouraged H.P. Lovecraft wrote many letters uh, to many different people, and he would encourage people to also write essentially what now we might think of as fan fiction, um, but kind of fiction also set in this shared universe, um, and many after his death continued to do so. And one of those was August Derleth. Uh, Derleth coined the term Cthulhu Mythos, um, which kind of encompassed in his view, based on my understanding, kind of a a portion of Lovecraft's writings as well as uh, his own and a number of other people. However, since that time, uh, since Daryl's pathing, even um, a lot of other authors have written stories that involve characters or beings or aspects that in some way might kind of tie into this larger fictional universe. It's kind of in my mind. Um, and whenever I'm recording this podcast, uh, even though I am not purely defined as comics, otherwise I always feel like I'm thinking about things from a comic standpoint when I'm talking to Glenn with a mic in front of me for some reason. Um, <laughs> but I think of it very much the way that the Marvel universe is set up or the DC kind of continuity of the shared universe there where you've got Superman in Metropolis, you've got Batman in Gotham, and you also have dream in the dreaming and the dreaming is, you know, something that's being experienced by people who are in Metropolis and people in Gotham. And so all of these creatures are kind of in the shared universe. So you can have dream interfacing with Martian Manhunter and with Scott Free, the Miracle Man. So here with the Cthulhu mythos, we can have characters like Randolph Carter interfacing with people who uh, are other characters that Lovecraft would have written or characters that someone else might later write and which Lovecraft has nothing to do with this. Then a lot of times the stories have nothing to do with Cthulhu at all. So the Cthulhu mythos is just kind of the, the name given based on uh, Lovecraft's, you know, most famous work, the call of Cthulhu. Right. The term Cthulhu mythos did not originate with Lovecraft. Uh, Lovecraft himself referred to what he and uh, Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard and others were up to as Yog sothery but uh, somehow that just has not caught on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think Cthulhu mythos just sounds sounds better. And you know, of course, Cthulhu did become the most famous story that he's known for. But I think the the parallel that you're seeing there with with comics, especially superhero comics, is spot on, Brent. I mean, the and I don't think it's an accident that DC is largely inventing this idea really at the same time that Lovecraft and Smith and, and Howard are are doing this, that they are developing a, a shared world, but not by working together on it, but by working independently and then yes-anding each other and borrowing things from each other, loaning things to each other, and then also using that world as a place in which to set different types of stories. So you can get stories that are science fiction. You can get stories that are horror. You can get stories that are fantasy. You can get detective stories. You can get funny stories, though none of the those three authors did funny stories like that, <laughs> but the one we're going to do today is a funny story for sure. And you can have all of that, adventure stories and so on, and depending on uh, any particular writer's approach. And yeah, that's the same thing that, that 
comics universes are. DC does this, Marvel does this. They're they're built on on this, and you can do team ups from time to time. Though that is not something that Lovecraft and and uh, uh, his writing friends uh, got got up to. And then, yeah, as you say, Brent, there's a, a generational continuation of this Lovecraft, who yes, wrote uh, loads of letters and very long letters. That's a joke that Gaiman himself is going to make in this story. Twenty thousand word letters from time to time, really encouraged younger writers to to write and to get started on their own careers, but also to make use of his own material. Uh, you mentioned August Leth, but Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, Psycho has nothing to do with the Cthulhu mythos, but uh, that's what he's most famous for. But Robert Block is uh, was probably the most successful of these writers, and that tradition has continued. And Neil Gaiman is a part of that tradition. You and I, and also Brandon Buddha, have already teamed up on this show to cover one of Gaiman's Cthulhu mythos stories. That's the story. Only the End of the World Again, which uh, is a riff on the shadow over Innsmouth, among other things. And uh, Gaiman has done this in other places as well, with uh, a study in Emerald, for example. And then here also with I, Cthulhu, which we will get into momentarily. But I, I thought before we actually get into talking about yeah, you know, the premise and the gimmick and the synopsis of this story, maybe we should just put our cards on the table here a little bit, Brennan, and talk about our, our histories with H.P. Lovecraft and maybe more broadly, the Cthulhu mythos. When did you first get into these things? Eons and eons ago, there was... No, I don't don't quite remember. So once upon a time, if you will, I definitely remember picking up uh, Lovecraft Works at the library that you and I uh, both went to frequently and then worked at it for a time. Um, And I remember actually the uh, little cart that they had in the front of the library in the lobby where there were uh, excess books that were for sale. And I remember at one point there was a lot of HP Lovecraft paperbacks and this was like, you know, 25 cents or 50 cents a book. And I remember buying like six of them or something, including like a one book that was just a collection of discussion of the Cthulhu Mythos uh, by Lynn Carter. It was not actually a collection of stories of any kind, um, which I don't think I fully understood till I got home. And I was just like, there's no story in this, but I find this fascinating. So I don't know exactly what point that was. I want to say it was round about junior high age is when I started reading H.P. Lovecraft. Um, the first time, maybe even a little before that. Um, I also... Um, as we were interested in role-playing games, stumbled on a early version of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game at a used bookstore um, when I was visiting Iowa City, Iowa, and picked that up, um, and so then had that on my bookshelf as well. And that's really where I got bolted more into the idea of writings about the mythos that expanded beyond Lovecraft's work, because the uh, things in uh, Call of Cthulhu are pulling from block and derelith and others as well to help kind of flesh out and expand some of these things uh what about you glenn i don't remember exactly if you'd encountered before or after i had or around the same time uh no it was it was it was after and in fact i read all those books that you just talked about you you had picked them up at a time possibly even before you and i had really become friends in junior high so you might have picked them up in like sixth grade or the summer right before seventh grade or something like that and that was really the same time that i was really getting into edgar Allan poe and so even though you had told me about lovecraft and maybe even had shown me some of these books i just didn't read them 
at that point because I needed to read The Fall of the House of Usher for the 25th time, and which, you know, as a decision I stand by, <laughs> remains one of my favorite writers of all time. But of course, Lovecraft now is as well. But it wasn't until freshman year of high school when one of our uh, comrades in our gaming group was running a, a D&D campaign, but was going to run it as a, a Lovecraftian horror campaign. And I didn't really know what that meant. And he gave me some homework to do, which was to read Lovecraft. But I actually started by reading, not Lovecraft directly, but reading the book, uh, reading the core book for the Call of Cthulhu RPG that you had on your shelf in uh, in your parents' basement. That was actually my real entry in. And that might even have been the specific suggestion of the person who was going to be running that uh, Lovecraftian horror D&D campaign that, that never really got off the foot. I think we all ran a series of individual adventures in that uh, without, uh, but then never actually started a campaign, which was, I don't know, that's what our gaming group did over and over and over again, which was, was fine. But yeah, I was hooked once I started reading Lovecraft in freshman year of high school and have been ever since. And in fact, uh, the the flagship show here on the network is a really a Lovecraftian horror show, Elder Sign, our, our weird fiction podcast. We do more than just cosmic horror. We do more than just Lovecraftian horror there, but that's really at the, the core of it. So it has remained with me as an important, uh, really important part of my life that I would not have gotten into at all without you. I, th- I remember a time in, in high school, I think, where I very much thought about my sensibilities being defined by if it was Lovecraft or cyberpunk, then it was uh, within my domain. Um, <laughs> and if it was uh, beyond that, then it was uh, I might be a secondary player, but I was not the authority when it came to, um, you know, some superhero stuff or otherwise. Um, the real question is, have those 25-cent paperbacks you got from the public library, have they survived? Are they, they in the room with you right now? They are in the room with me right now. They are um, on a shelf along with uh, many, many other uh, – I went through a phase occasionally and still do where I'll end up in a used bookstore and I will see a particular collection of Lovecraft that I do not have and I will buy it even though I literally have every one of those stories. Well, to be fair, you you also have five different versions of every Sandman issue, and uh, that's just you're you're a completionist, <laughs> and it's no. Sh- I I do, although frankly, the podcast network gives me an excuse to to buy even more of those. That's what the podcast network is for. It's an excuse for us to buy books. Yeah. <laughs> Well, before we transition into talking about the story, let me uh, let me thank listeners for indulging us here. I, I think I had envisioned that prologue segment as a, a five minute thing, but we have uh, <laughs> we, we have we have really decided to dwell on our our early adolescence here. So thank you for sticking with us as we move into actually talking about the story here. First thing we should say about I Cthulhu is that it is a funny story. It's a, a tongue in cheek, playful go at. What is really the absurdity of Cthulhu and, and cosmic horror entities in general? And the basic idea is that this is Cthulhu's autobiography. Uh, the title, I, Cthulhu, is a play on the Robert Graves novel, I, Claudius, uh, which is also a fictional autobiography, though in this case of a real person, a real Roman emperor, one of the, the first emperors. And the way that this works in this game and story is that Cthulhu is telling his tale to a human, as a human named Waitley, uh, which then must mean that he is one of the characters from Lovecraft's uh, really awesome novella, The Dunwich Horror. It's really one of my favorite stories of his. And the fun here, also I think the funny here, is that Gaiman is going to weave in a lot of the details of the mythos and to try to make a coherent backstory out of them 
while also trying to make Cthulhu a protagonist. And the result is really a bunch of lighthearted silliness and a lot of attempts at retconning that are really meant to point out that you can't really retcon. You can't really make everything that was ever said by Lovecraft and his colleagues, you can't make that all tie together in a nice bow. So let me just give a a very brief synopsis of what Gaiman tells us here about the life of Cthulhu. Now, Cthulhu was spawned uncounted eons ago on another world in another plane. She never knew her parents because her mother ate her father after procreation, as you do. And then Cthulhu herself had to eat her mother in order to emerge into the world. This is just the natural order of things for this species. Cthulhu then grew up in a swamp for a few thousand years and was then invited out into the cosmos for a bit of fun by her uncle Haster. Uh, Together with a bunch of other Mythos figures, including Azathoth and Yogg-Sothoth, they traveled the cosmos. And in this capacity, Cthulhu met the King in Yellow on Dim Carcosa. And the King in Yellow told Cthulhu that, hey, It is a lot of fun to go conquer other worlds. It's really what mythos entities do for fun in this plane. And so Cthulhu came to Earth. And then we get a bit about Cthulhu's happy times on Earth when she's living in the ocean. Uh, Then also we get a summary of Lovecraft's very big backstory about the deep history of Earth that comes from one of his longer works at the Mountains of Madness. And then Gaiman concludes by wondering something that we have all wondered, which is, How did Cthulhu end up dreaming at the bottom of the ocean? And Gaiman doesn't really tell us. Uh, There are some missing pages at this point, but it has something to do with the stars changing. The stars are, are no longer right. But the story ends with Cthulhu predicting that the stars will be right again someday, and the time of destruction will be upon us. And then eventually, Cthulhu will leave this plane, and around that time will also have reached full maturity and be ready to mate, and in turn be consumed by her own child. So, Ren, I really enjoyed this story, even though humor, especially gimmicky humor, is not normally my thing. I I just had a real blast with this, but I, I wonder how it worked for you. A trouble that I have with Cthulhu is, and anything related to the mythos, is I really have to be in the mood for for it to strike me at for, for the humor to work. Um, and so I have to admit that when I, you first mentioned we were going to, you know, read this story for the network. I was excited to revisit it. Um, cause I remembered very little about it. In fact, I had confused it with a completely different story. And then I found myself really not enjoying it. Uh, the first time, the second time I reread it, I was in a much better place where I liked it a lot more. Um, and it just, it really strikes me on, and whether or not you like you're in the mood of the, we'll call it the Cthulhu plushie <laughs> in which, you know, Cthulhu uh, and other things in the mythos as a kind of supernatural cosmic horror, um, in which, uh, you know, relating to all kinds of existential dread and very much related to the insignificance of one's own place in the cosmos. And, um, I mean, there's some kind of heady and dark stuff there, um, that I enjoy quite a bit. But when you then make it a plushie, Sometimes I'm in the mood for it and sometimes I'm not. Now, behind my shoulder, along with my Cthulhu, uh, my Lovecraft books, I do have my Cthulhu uh, Funko Pop. Um, so I clearly am sometimes in the mood for that. And it, with this story, I believe you really just have to be in the mood for I'm in it for the humor. 
And there is a lot of fun. You can play with the Cthulhu and with the things that do hook together and the things that don't hook together at all with the mythos. And there's a lot of, you know, waving at things like, you know, mention Waitley and it's excitement if you know who the Waitley family is. But if you're in a mood to be annoyed at someone kind of waving at things, seemingly just to wave at things, you're going to be annoyed when you read this. Did you have that experience where you kind of felt yourself seesawing a little bit as you as you revisited it? I, not this time. I did not. But I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's especially this this is very common for me because I don't generally enjoy funny all, all that much. Certainly not. Certainly not in prose. I mean, I, I enjoy funny movies and funny TV shows and stand up comedy and so on. But it actually this is a feeling that I often have. Speaking of stand up comedy, when I am watching Patton Oswalt, who I love, I think he's brilliant and I'm excited to hear him voice Matthew the Raven. But you know, his shtick is making jokes about things that really matter to me that are that I take very seriously. It's actually really great to go laugh at things and about things you take very seriously. So that's awesome. But every once in a while I'll I'll check out one of his one of his bits and I'll think, yeah, that is a great question about Star Trek or that is a great question about Lovecraft or Star Wars. Let's take that question seriously rather than use it as a punchline. And of course, that's totally about my mood. That's about me not being in the right space for that type of of story. And if you had just asked me if I was going to be in that type of mood coming to this story, coming to Icathulu, I would have predicted yes, because it's not normally my thing. But Brandon and I are hot off of finishing up our series on At the Mountains of Madness that we have been doing for a year. And uh, I think that I actually needed a bit of a palate cleanser here, and that Icathulu worked great for that. It got me laughing at maybe the uber seriousness with which, well, Lovecraft takes himself, but also with which Brandon and I take Lovecraft all the time. And I I needed that. I actually feel kind of refreshed from having read this story. And I mean, that makes sense, because I think, <laughs> particularly with At the Mountains of Madness, which is a great story, but it's uh, it's long and it's dense uh, in its verbiage. And so something that helps in kind of a, a, a short um, and direct way, kind of have fun with it um, in a way that, I mean, I, I don't, you know, in no point, even when I'm not in the mood for this kind of a humor at no point do I feel that Neil Gaiman is kind of, you know, taking, you know, shots at Lovecraft or the mythos. There's not like the easy, you know, let me just make fun of it because I, it's silly. It, it's actually kind of well-structured and it is making fun of how it's silly, but it's not done maliciously. No, this is an act of, of love here. I mean, uh, Gaiman has certainly written serious bits in the Cthulhu mythos. We've we've covered one of them. We're going to cover another one at, at some point. And yeah, this is a real act of, of love here. And I think that comes off the page too. And I, I really yeah. appreciate that. So there, I mean, this is definitely a type of, of, of fan fiction here. And I, I think it's, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. And, it, and this originally is from 86 and, um, uh, I think there are some things not related to Cthulhu, but kind of similar humorous bits that he does later in his career that I like more, um, which is not to say this isn't bad, although I will say that when this was bouncing off of me, um, it was bouncing off of me in part because I would not be in the mood for some of the Cthulhu bit. But then I would also think, you know, what I'd rather be listening listening to or reading is Gaiman um, doing 
this other piece that he I know does a year or two years or ten years later, um, which have nothing to do with Cthulhu, and, and which um, we will, which we will get to, which we will get to, um, and some we maybe already have. I no longer recall. Um, yeah, we've been doing this for <laughs> many a while. eons have passed, <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean, I, I think it's a very enjoyable piece. I just uh, a warning to the reader: if you have not read it, uh, or even if you have and you are interested in revisiting, uh, make sure you are in a Cthulhu plushy kind of mood, um, as I will call it. Well, speaking of listeners who maybe haven't read this story, we have mostly been talking about this story at a fairly zoomed out level. And I think we ought to zoom in a little bit and give listeners a a taste of the details here. This is definitely something we could spend forever on, but I think that would ruin some of the fun of the story. And so what we're going to do here is just talk about two elements. We've each picked two elements to talk about at at greater length. One of them, a a supernatural entity, and then some other element from the mythos. And we'll just present these to each other to kind of dissect a little bit. So uh, Brent, what did Gaiman do with one of the mythos deities that you really enjoyed in the story? I enjoyed what he did with, I mean, he he collectively refers to them as the boys. (laughs) Um, uh, When Haster comes by and says, hey, let's go in the town. And, And and I like the Haster bit, but I want to focus on particularly Cthulhu goes with Azathoth, Yogsothoth, Nylor, Nylorthothotep, <laughs> Toshaga, um, uh, Aishub Nigarath, uh, Yogath, and a few others. Um, but, uh, Azathoth is always, uh, one of my favorite, uh, Lovecraftian creations, kind of this swirling mad, Thing at the center of infinity or at the center of the cosmos or outside of angled space, I think are three completely different ways that he's referred to throughout time. Uh, and in other fiction referred to as, you know, there's uh, terrible drumming and flute playing going on all around uh, it. Um, but it's kind of this in my mind and in the images I've seen um, based on, on Lovecraft's writings and writings of others, kind of this roiling collection of, just kind of stuff uh, that exists at the heart of things, kind of like chaos incarnate um, that is quite mad and perhaps will devour all of the universe and the cosmos as a whole uh, if it ever should wake up. And perhaps it's this uh, terrible, unmelodic drumming and flute playing is actually keeping it asleep, which is just a funny twist on the kind of things that I use sometimes to put myself to sleep. Um, <laughs> so I like the fact of envisioning Azathoth along with these other gods, just kind of showing up in the back of like a sedan to like, go hit it on the town. Like <laughs> that's the image that I had in my head. The word sedan does not appear anywhere in this particular work, but that was just, I'm just imagining the swirling thing in the seat as you're going to head off. Um, just kind of like mindlessly, maybe gibber, maybe still asleep while doing so. Uh, and I just love that, that image. And it, it, again, a lot of that isn't actually in what Gaiman writes. He relies on me bringing that to it, which I think works really well because it's what I bring to it. And I bring as little or as much as I want. If I didn't know who has the thought was, it's a funny sounding name. Right. I mean, this, this story only works if you have some familiarity with the Cthulhu mythos. I mean, and it's published in a magazine called Dagon, which is a, a fanzine from the 1980s, <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's who the audience here is. So you've got to be in on the joke in order to get the joke for sure. And I, I like this 
image that you're painting here, Brent, of Azathoth as the kind of Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's. And there needs to be a, a Weekend at, at Azathoth's uh, <laughs> film at some there point. I would I would love that. Yeah, Azathoth is awesome. He's referred to as the blind idiot god. He does appear in a story that's called Azathoth, but I think actually he really is more important in, or we get more information about him actually, I think in the dreams in the witch house, which is one of uh, Lovecraft's uh, bigger uh, stories, really important stories. Yeah. As a thought's a great choice. Yeah. In fact, I think as a thought, the story itself might even just be like a store fragment. I think it's like maybe even originally during his life unpublished, or if it was, it was very much a work in progress, but it was only like three paragraphs long. So it doesn't say much, but it's, it's, it's kind of a fun image. Um, and in particular, um, I encourage anyone to get on Google and look at the image um, on the Wikipedia entry for Azathoth, um, which is kind of what always comes to mind for me, which is a collection of mouths and eye stalks and tentacles floating amongst all of the universes while you have these like grotesque things playing like pan flutes around it, which is just I like it a lot. So the idea of, yeah, thinking of it as Bernie of the Weekend of Bernie's basically in the car where he's not dead, but he's you know, asleep in some capacity um, while he's hitting the town and, and maybe even just a couple of his tentacles are awake, but he's not fully awake. Anyways, it it, it worked really well for me um, uh, when I was in a mood to enjoy this. Then uh, that was just kind of a, a fun laugh that I got to have. But what about you, Glenn? Was there anything in particular that you struck you as particularly funny or enjoyable and in, in something Neil Gaiman did here with a mythos related thing. Yes. I mean, I love the King in Yellow. Uh, the King in Yellow is a, a figure who you, you mentioned already, Brent. Uh, the King in Yellow is not invented by Lovecraft. It's actually invented by Robert W. Chambers in his 1895 short story collection, which is called The King in Yellow. Uh, but The King in Yellow has been wrapped up into the mythos for a long time. There is a, a distinct thing called the Yellow Mythos, but nonetheless, that is frequently kind of brought into the Cthulhu mythos and has is a, a name actually that uh, occurs there, although not uh, originally there, um, but that occurred, but that is really part of the mythos because of its use by uh, by Chambers. And these stories are some of my favorite bits of weird fiction. In fact, Brandon and I are really close to finishing that collection. I mean, it, it has taken us three years or four years, I guess, actually, to read through it as we've just been doing it uh, in, in order, but only occasionally as listeners uh, have, have requested over on Elder Sign. And Anytime anybody invokes the King in Yellow, I'm going to be going to be there for it. But I, I just also like the idea that he is the person who told Cthulhu that it would be fun to go conquer other, another planet, and he should go find a planet that is, you know, ripe for for conquest. And Cthulhu looks around, and she finds, you know, very early Earth, still mostly just an ocean, and uh, is able to to get installed there and uh, rule this place for a billion years or so. Uh, just the whole idea of that to me is absolutely h- hilarious. I like a couple things going on there. I like the character of the King in Yellow being the one who is providing kind of the sage advice and kind of the practicality of like, hey, instead of just hanging out in swamps or going around and just eating things, it's fun to like take things over, which is also kind of, I think, a fun commentary on the role that Chambers work played in influencing Lovecraft, where, as you said, the King in Yellow coming before 
Lovecraft is inviting Cthulhu, then include another thing. So therefore, the king in yellow is the one who is dispensing this sagely advice as kind of the older, cool, you know, the cooler, you know, older teen or, you know, oh, he's in college now, so he knows what's fun to Cthulhu um, is kind of a fun way to view that, which is also just somewhat the relationship that Lovecraft's writing has in relationship to Chambers in terms of the chronology of things um, and who is influencing whom to do what. Yes, absolutely. We, we've talked about Cthulhu as being the most famous thing Lovecraft invented, but that's actually, I think, probably not true. It's really the, the Necronomicon, which is this book from the, the 8th century that is a work of black magic and demonology with this cosmic horror bent. It's it's not a, a real book. It's just something that Lovecraft has invented to include in his stories to have characters get a hold of, uh, uh, be the, the solution to trouble sometimes, but also be the source of trouble in, in many times as well. And Lovecraft's idea for the Necronomicon, I think, was rather directly inspired by by things that he encountered in the the King in Yellow. In fact, it's the play called the the King in Yellow, as this uh, fictional book inside a fictional book that has some kind of supernatural or, or mystical quality to it, and is forbidden and uh, must be. Uh, contained and controlled. People need to be protected from it. That's the same thing that the Necronomicon is. And so, yeah, I think Gaiman is doing exactly what you're suggesting here, Brent, in making kind of a joke out of out of that connection. And it, it works brilliantly. So what was something that was not one of these, uh, these, these people, these supernatural people from the mythos that uh, appears here that you enjoyed? I enjoyed the... Um the mention of the Shuggath, which is kind of a recurring humorous bit in it, um, in which it very much is referred to as if it's kind of like the dog, um, make sure you feed it, or it could be a fish, um, in which, but I kind of envisioned that there was like a dog and it's maybe in a dog kennel, um, just outside and that Cthulhu keeps telling Waitley, like, did they make sure to feed the Shuggath? And the implication is that, uh, Waitley is going to maybe be fed to the Shuggath. Um, uh, and I, Really enjoyed that. The Shuggaths, um, are interesting to me. I think they're most spelled out in the most verbiage that Lovecraft gives us on it is in the Mountains of Madness that you and Brandon have been discussing. Um, but it appears in some other writings by Lovecraft and others in the mythos. And I feel like sometimes they change in terms of level of kind of intelligence and awareness and as well as size and scope. I believe in Mountains of Madness, they are. Uh, there is one depicted as being like the size of a train car that basically just kind of collapses over a bunch of penguins at one point. And it's kind of this roiling kind of mound of kind of flesh and, and like, uh, with floating eyes all over it. Um, which reminds me a lot of a lot of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of D and D monsters that are in part, um, based on the Shuggath rather than the other way around. But since I encountered them first in monster manuals and then later encountered what a Shuggath was, <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's like gibbering mouthers and things where there's just like collections of teeth and eyes and everything looks kind of awful and off. And it's, it's kind of, it's some fun kind of, there's body horror going on. There's the fact that you're dealing with something alien. You know, this is very much the origin of, um, uh, things that led to like the blob, uh, but they actually were created as uh, discussed in Mountains of Madness as kind of a servitor species. 
Yeah, as you say, the shoggoths were invented by the Elder Things, who we encounter in At the Mountains of Madness. And something we also learn in At the Mountains of Madness is that the Elder Things fought a war against Cthulhu. And that is a part of the autobiography that we get here in this story. Though Gaiman does not spell out that there's any connection between the Elder Things and shoggoths here. But if you know that, what you're left with here is the image of Cthulhu having adopted one of the slaves of the Elder Things for a type of pet. And yeah, Brandon and I spent a lot of time talking about how the backstory of the Elder Things in At the Mountains of Madness can be read as a a story of a a class war, a a type of slave revolt, or at least the revolt of an underclass of of some sort. And uh, Gaiman here maybe is even suggesting that Cthulhu got involved in that and is perhaps a a liberator uh, of of sorts, which is, you know, itself a kind of a, a hilarious idea. Well, or just a different master, right? <laughs> right. Well, yes, that would be the actual idea, because Cthulhu is not the liberator of anyone. Cthulhu is a scary, is a scary, scary thing that should never be, never be turned into a plushie. Uh, was there a particular uh, other uh, kind of non-deity mythos thing that you that struck you as particularly you know, funny or intellectually enjoyable in another capacity? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, on the last page of the story, Gaiman really treats this story as if it is a text that exists materially in the speculative world of this story. So we get an editor's note that explains that at least three pages are missing. And so we realize at this point that we must be reading an edition of this that has been prepared by an editor and a publisher. And then what the note tells us, uh, the note that tells us about the missing pages, what it does is it invokes professors Armitage and Wilmarth, who are uh, the rare books librarian and and then uh, English professor at Miskatonic University, which is Lovecraft's fictional Ivy League university situated in the fictional town of Arkham, Massachusetts. And I love Lovecraft stories about scholars. It's one of my favorite elements of weird fiction in general. And so their appearance here just had me smiling. I'm so glad that Gaiman found a way to bring in Professor Armitage in particular, who is probably my favorite Lovecraftian invention, uh, the the rare books librarian at Miskatonic University. Yeah, the Dunwich Horror is an interesting story because it's one of the more triumphal works that he has in which there's a lot of dark, terrible things going on, but you also get to see humans who are not just viewed as crazy by other people they're interacting with, um, but are actually able to like find comrades in arms to come to join together to try to save at least the hour, if not the day or the millennium. And yeah, it, it's fun to, to, to particularly name check those characters. Um, and the Waitley family factoring into that story as well. So it, it kind of directly ties it into where the professors already have some uh, knowledge and expertise. Right. I'd like to imagine that these professors found this manuscript in the the Waitley barn, uh, you know, after after the final page of the Dunwich Horror. And yeah, the Dunwich Horror is, it's one of my favorite stories for sure, but it's also one of Lovecraft's most important stories, if only for the fact that it essentially is the inspiration for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. I think without the Dunwich Horror, there would be no Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Without that role-playing game, I do not think we would be living in the golden age of Lovecraftian stories that we we find ourselves in today. Yeah, I think you might well be right on all counts there. 
Well, I'll, I'll take that. It's, 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 it's rare that ever happens and certainly rare that you ever say so. so. Well, that's that's the story, but there there is actually a little bit more to talk about because Gaiman includes with this story on his website uh, a letter that he published in Dagon number 17, so the, the next issue. And this is something that we did talk about during Season of Mist, but here in this letter, Gaiman explains that he's planning to write an article about the recently discovered correspondence and collaboration between H.P. Lovecraft and P.G. Woodhouse, uh, P.G. Woodhouse being the author of the Jeeves stories, among other things. And the gimmick is that Gaiman has recently, also mysteriously, come into possession of these manuscripts that, you know, no one else knows about, and he's just waiting for the legal clearance before he can publish something about them. But he does give us a a little tease, a little taste here. Now, the novel that they co-wrote is called The What-Ho on the Threshold, or alternatively titled It's the Call of Cthulhu, Jeeves. Uh, I guess the implication here is they couldn't agree on what what to call it. But then he also has some fragments of their musical, called Necronomicon Summer, and he even gives us a song. And I have to say that I I love this bit as well, though I don't know P.G. Woodhouse's work very well. I certainly don't know his 1920s Broadway musicals, so I'm perhaps not the best audience for this humor here. Uh, I don't think you're a big fan of musicals in general, Brent. Is is that right? That's fair. Uh, I am not a big fan of most musicals. Right. Maybe maybe the, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer musical, perhaps the one exception. There's a couple others, but uh, that is the big one. But I, I am also unfamiliar with the works of of um, Woodhouse, and I'm not as familiar with the kind of musical that I think Neil Gaiman is trying to riff on here for Necronomicon Summer. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So I'm not sure that I have a whole lot to say about this other than that I found it funny and that I wish that uh, Gaiman would write some fan fiction about his own fan fiction here. I, w- I would love to see whatever this novel is. I, I would especially love to go to the theater and, and uh, watch this musical. I think this sounds this sounds awesome. So I, I, I think we need to start a petition for that. I also like his introduction of the potential uh, portmanteau uh, to make them the Lovehouse Woodcraft letters, uh, Woodcraft letters. Uh, and it's just kind of a fun, it's a fun bit that we have there. Well, there's a story idea embedded there too. You could, you could Jekyll and Hyde that. Uh, they're, they're actually literally the same person or at least inhabiting the same body. Uh, but who gets to be in charge uh, is, you know, varies by the phases of the moon or, or depending on uh, what meals have been eaten or something, something like that. Uh, I would read that story too. And uh, I don't know, we just need to get a big petition going with a list of things we want Neil Gaiman to write. I'm sure he would happily take that up for us. Yeah, I'm sure that would be good. And I just kind of thought that maybe it was the implication that perhaps they were lovers and perhaps they're, uh, they, they, they managed to, uh, they're, perhaps they had a whirlwind romance that only circled around the idea of a Necronomicon summer. Oh man, I would read that rom-com. I, yes, I, I, that's the best idea. That's the best idea we've had. That's the one I want. That's what the petition is going to be for. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think now that I'm I'm begging listeners to join on to our petition to get Neil Gaiman to write stories that he's clearly never actually going to write, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you would like more talk about Cthulhu, Lovecraft, The King in Yellow, Azathoth, Shoggoths and so on. I hope you'll check out our other show, Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast. 
Next time here on Hanging Out with the Dream King, Brent and I are going to be back with an episode on the last days of the Justice Society of America, where we will get to check in on what is really happening in Odin's magic snow globe that we got a glimpse of in Season of Mists. But until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>